Father, we thank you that you've shown us your generosity, your grace and mercy that you've shown us through your son, Jesus, that he has died in our place. We thank you for the grace that you give to us, not because we deserve it, not because we do the things that could earn your favor, but simply because you are gracious and you set your favor on us, not because of what we do, but because of who you are. We thank you that you're a God of grace and mercy, and we pray that you would continue to do work in our hearts, that as we are recipients of grace, that we would live that way to other people around us, that we would daily be reminded that we don't have our lives together, and we confess that we don't have our lives together this morning. And so, Lord, I pray that you would meet people where they're at, who know their need, maybe even people who don't yet know their need for your grace. We pray for time in your word. We pray that it would be a rich blessing. We know that your word does not come back void. We pray that your spirit would do work in our hearts, the work that needs to be done in our hearts this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. One of the classic comedy Tommy Boy. Yeah, that's the way I'm starting this series. The classic comedy Tommy Boy Tommy Callahan is on the long plan for college. He graduates college in a measly seven years, and he comes home to his dad's company, Callahan Auto, and he gets, of course, an executive's job right out of college. And Tommy, let's just say he's the life of the party, and he's good with people, but he's a few tools short of a toolbox, no pun intended. But he has this executive role in his daddy's company. His dad's a widower, and yet his dad is getting married to this beautiful woman who's actually a con artist. And at the wedding, he kicks over. The dad kicks over, and he dies of a heart attack. And what Tommy learns after that from the bank is the company has not been in such good shape, so much so that they're going to shut it down. And Tommy takes the shares that he has and says, wait. Would you not shut it down? I'll be a salesman. I'll go out and try to make money for the company. And the bank comes back and says, look, if you, if you can sell 500,000 brake pads in the next X amount of time, we won't shut Callahan Auto up. And he goes out, never been a salesman in his life. He goes out with David Spade. If you know the movie, Chris Farley plays Tommy. David Spade, not quite the personality should be pushing pencils in a room. And those two, those two characters go out to sell brake pads. Tommy doesn't do so well, pretty comedically doesn't do so well in the selling of brake pads. And they come to the scene, if you know the movie, the diner, the diner scene, and he meets Helen, the waitress. She's really lovely, by the way. And he needs to vent a little bit. And so he says, hey, hey Helen, I'm a salesman like you, and you know why I'm a terrible salesman? And he goes on this rant that I can't reproduce because I'm not Chris Farley. But he effectively goes through his whole spiel of why he's a terrible salesman because he gets so excited about the sale, and he takes this role on the table, and he says, this is kind of like the sale that I'm trying to make. I love it. I care for it, and then I break it. And kill it. I kill the sale. Go watch the clip. I can't do it justice. Nor am I going to try. And the counselor, Helen, 
simply says, you're sick. (laughs) You're sick. Listen, if I was a biblical counselor and I could sit down in that deli with Tommy Callahan and counsel him, I would say something like this. Tommy, it's a great thing that you want to save your daddy's company. It's a great thing that you want to save all these people's jobs. That's a good thing. You're doing something good, but it's become a bad thing because the sale has has become what's controlling you. A good thing has become a bad thing because it's become a ruling thing. See, that's how idols in our life work. Good things can become bad things when they become ruling things, and we try to control them. We try to get our significance out of them. What things in your life have too firm of a grip? What things in your life are M-I-N-E, mine? What is it for you? What what controls you? Is it your stuff? Is it your work? Is it your time? Is it your wallet and your money? What is it that can control you? What are the temptations you face as it relates to things that you're trying to control? Parents, what does that look like with your kids? I promise you can't control them. Not like you think you can. You can't control relationships. You can't control things the way that you want to. And here's the thing that control often does. When we hold things so tight, whatever those things are, whether it's the sale, whether it's the people in our lives, whether it's our money, whether it's our hopes and dreams, whether it's the project at work, We can't be generous people. We can't hold our life or our things or the people in our lives with an open hand. We tend to say, mine. We're going to spend the next five weeks talking about how we can be generous people. And some of you are checking out right now and saying, hey, for the next five weeks, I ain't going to be here because this guy wants to talk about money. And I'm out on that deal. When he comes back from sabbatical, then I may show up. You need to come for Colossians. But generosity isn't just about money. Generosity has a lot of currencies beyond money. And even people who give money may not be all that generous. We'll get to that. You see, generosity has one source. And that's what we're going to start this generous series out with today. What is the source of all generosity? We need to understand how generosity flows out to us. We're going to look at the source today. We're going to look at real evidence to generosity. And we're going to see the key today to generosity. Here's my question for you. Is everything you have really yours? Are you the owner of all that's yours? I know the title on the car or the house is in your name. But is it really yours? Are your kids really yours? Is your spouse really yours? Is the business that you created really yours? Is your time really yours? Is your body really yours? On and on. Is it really all yours? Genesis 1 says it this way. In the beginning, God 
created the heavens and the earth. God is the creator. And Psalm 24.1 says this, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and all those who dwell in it. Is it mine? It's not. Ultimately, all that you have is his. You steward it. You're the foreman of it. You're supposed to care for it. But all that you have is not mine. It's his. He's the creator. He's the owner. It's all his. Can I tell you, that completely changes the way that you see the sale. That completely changes the way that you see your relationship, that you see your wallet, that you see your time. Changes the way you live if you really get that truth. And if you don't really get that truth, the next four or five weeks are going to be tough. See, generosity starts with God. Let me give you a couple of other particulars just to build this case. You think about the big picture of Scripture, and you can't go through many pages of Scripture without seeing God's generosity and creation and covenant and promise and the law that was meant to do what? Bless in the cross, in a new life, in the consummation of heaven. See, God's disposition as the creator of the universe, the create, your creator, the owner of all things, is not stingy, is not greedy, but lavishly generous. Here's your first thought. The source of all generosity is God himself. That's a game changer It's a game changer to the way that you view possessions, people, time, money, relationship. It loosens or it can loosen your grip on what is mine. Can it not? See, sometimes though, we know that. These aren't new truths to you, many of you. But sometimes we lose sight of these truths, don't we? We lose sight of this even as church folks even as people who know better. And you know who really loses sight of God's generosity? Religious people. People who think they bring all that they need to God's table. Look at me. I'm so generous. Religious people are some of the most blind people to their need of generosity. Not just the heathen. Turn with me to Luke chapter 18. And we'll be in verses 9 through 14 today as we look at God's generosity toward us. And you're going to see in this text, page 877 on a Bible close to you. Do we have Bibles? Somewhere. On your device up here, bring your Bible. Turn with me to Luke 18, 9 through 14. And we're going to see this parable that Jesus gives, this parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. Look at it with me here. And I'm going to show you who... God shows generosity to, okay? Luke 18, verse 9 through 14. He also told the parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like the other men. That's a nice way to start a prayer, huh? Extortioners, 
unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector over here. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing where? Far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, it's Jesus speaking, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself, lifts himself up, will be humbled. And the one who humbles himself, comes low, will be exalted. Let's talk about the Pharisee in the parable for a minute. You know, when we look at the Pharisee in the Bible, we look through the eyes of Jesus. We know that the Pharisee is bad. He's, he's the bad guy because Jesus tells him, tells us that he's the bad guy. Um, but the problem is, if you were living in first century, he wouldn't have been the bad guy at all. People looked up to the Pharisee. That's why Jesus is saying here that there were some who trusted in themselves because people looked to the Pharisee. Here's the deal. The, Pharisee, the Pharisees in that day were the conservative, highly moral people, or at least had all these high moral standards. And in that culture, in the air that that culture was, it was very religious. And so if you were a parent of a, of a couple of boys, you know what you wanted your kid to do someday? You didn't want them to be the professional athlete. You didn't, you didn't want them to be the doctor or the lawyer. You wanted the, to them to be the Pharisee. They were the good guys. They were the people that were looked up to, that had power, that were super religious, that had relationship with God. That's who the Pharisee to a first century audience would have been like. You see, the Pharisee was the hero of the day, the good guy, the one who stood on a higher moral ground. But you see Jesus pointing out the problem here, don't you? Look at it. The Pharisee, two guys pray. This is really the parable of the two prayers. Two guys that pray very different prayers that look at how they approach God very differently. Here's the Pharisee's deal. It's hard to read, y'all. It's, I mean, you can cut the pride and the arrogance with a knife and the blindness with a knife, can't you? Here's the Pharisee. Notice a couple of things. The Pharisee's standing by himself. He's standing chest out. He prayed thus, God, look at the first person pronouns here. I I thank you that I'm not like the other guy. I'm not like the extortioner, the unjust, the adulteress, or that tax collector of, I fast twice a week. I give tithes. I, 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 I. Who's he really praying to? He's praying to himself, and he's pointing out how much greater he is than all these other people. See, that's what legalism does. You have to have people underneath you to compare yourself to that make you really generous, that make you really right with God. And then he gives us some deeds that he does. It says here that he fasts twice a week. Do you know the requirement of the law? God's law was to fast once a year. He's an overachiever. He's probably a skinny guy too. If you do that kind of thing. Twice a week. 
And then it says, I give tithes of not just some of what I get, but all of what I get. That's 10% of everything, not just some, everything. Look, these are his deeds that he's bringing before them. That's an interesting prayer, is it not? The way he approaches God is comparison. These are all externals, aren't they? Do you see that? They're externals. His position, he's a Pharisee. His posture, he's standing tall at the temple in front of everyone. His wallet, he gives generously. You give 10%, he gives generously. But see, Jesus knows his heart. Here's the problem, here's the point. The evidence of generosity is not just external. He's given a lot of money. He's given a lot of money. He's fasting twice a week for people to see, but his heart is far from God. You see, the evidence of generosity here is not just external, it's internal. Since we already went to Tommy Boy, let me give you another example from it. Ray Zelensky. Do you remember Ray Zelensky from the movie Tommy Boy? He's on all the commercials. He's the self-proclaimed auto king. Making a lot of money on auto parts. He's the chief competitor to Callahan Auto. He smiles real big for the camera. He gives to children. And even when he's trying to take the company from Tommy, he's smiling and at the same time saying, I'm going to shut down your plant. I just want the name. I don't care about the people. Externals. He was a greaser, a complete dirtbag. And yet he had all these externals that made him look so good. See, the Pharisee in the story doesn't see his needs for God's generosity. It's as if God should be happy that he's on the team because he's so great. There's a warning here, isn't there? There's a warning to you and to me. It's a pride and arrogance and self-righteousness before God. Do you see how blinding it is for this Pharisee that's supposed to see, but he's blind? He's blind to his own need of righteousness that he doesn't possess. That's the way legalism works in our lives. And the evidence to it is we're always comparing ourselves with others. We're always saying, well, I'm holier than they are. Let me ask you a question, though. It's not really the point of the parable. Jesus is creating a contrast here. But let me stop for a minute. Can God's grace and generosity even reach the Pharisee? People who trust in their own goodness and generosity, ability to merit themselves through their externals before God. Can I ask you, is this you? Was this you before you came to Jesus? Were you the Bible-thumping, cross-wearing, Awana champion? The saved till marriage? All those things are good things, y'all. The self-sufficient Savior? That was you? Listen, all those things can be good things. But if you're relying on those things to save you from yourself, it's never going to happen. Your sin is a front to God. You can't save yourself. Your goodness is not good enough. You see this all the way through the Bible with people, don't you? 
You remember what God would say to the nation Israel as they would bring sacrifice after sacrifice to the temple? Stop it. Stop giving me sacrifices. I want your what? I want your heart. I want your heart. Remember Nicodemus, the Pharisee, that comes to Jesus by night? Looks like he came to know Jesus and believe that Christ was the Messiah who was born again. Who wrote most of the New Testament? Praise God for this. If, if you're like the Pharisee and that's the bent in which you struggle, who wrote most of the New Testament? Paul. What did Paul say about himself? I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews. I'm a Pharisee of all Pharisees. He was the highest Pharisee. And yet God saved him and changed him. God can even show his generosity to those who don't believe they need it. Why? Because God saves sinners. Aren't you glad? That's the beauty of the gospel. Sin has so blinded us. Even in stained glass windows of church and religiosity, his generosity can still reach this kind of person. Was that you? Is that you? But look at the stark contrast in verse 13 and 14 with the tax collector. That's the Pharisee. Maybe you find yourself in that story, but maybe you find yourself in this story of the tax collector. Look at it. Verse 13, but the tax collector, here's the contrast. He wasn't standing tall, and in the center, he was standing far off, likely at the, barely in the door of the temple. He's standing far off. What else was he doing? He wouldn't even lift up his eyes to heaven to pray. His head was down. And he beat his breast, not in pride like the Pharisee, but he beat his breast in sorrow. In sorrow, why? Look at his prayer. It's not, God, thanks that I'm not like these people. I'm so great. His prayer is this. God. Be merciful to me, a sinner. You see the exclamation point there? He's not quiet about it. He's letting everyone know that he's in need of God's mercy. Can I tell you what mercy isn't? Mercy is not just sympathy, okay? It's not just, hey, God, um, I need your sympathy because my childhood was really rough and we were really poor, and so I'm a tax collector now because I don't want to have to deal with that. This is not sympathy. It's something more than sympathy. You know what else it isn't? It isn't, hey, God, I'll clean myself up. You know, instead of taking just a little bit from the top or a lot from the top, I'll take a little, little bit. Do you realize the tax collector in the New Testament, he was the guy who worked for Rome. They were occupying Jerusalem and Israel And they were Jews, and the Romans would collect taxes, high taxes, burdensome taxes, weighty taxes from the people, from the Jews. And it was the tax collector's job, who was a Jew as well, to take those taxes. But you know how the tax collector made money? The Romans said, we'll protect you, you can take above even that. And they made their money in the margins of that, so they could demand from their own countrymen 
higher taxes than Rome, which was already really high, and they got rich off of it. They preyed on their own people. They were scum. They were traitors. They were leeches. That's how they were regarded in Jewish society. They were, if you want a present-day equivalent, they would be the people who prey on the other people in society, the loan shark, the drug dealer, the pimp, the trafficker. That's the category that a tax collector's in. And yet, he calls for mercy. What does God do? What would God do? Here's the thing. Here's your thought. The key to generosity, receiving it and cultivating it, the key to generosity is seeing your need for God's mercy. God's mercy is not sympathy. God's mercy is not, hey, give me another chance, I'll fix it. God's mercy is covering. Mercy is not getting what you deserve. What does the tax collector deserve from people, from God? Nothing. Be merciful to me, a sinner. That's his posture. What's Jesus' take on those two guys, the Pharisee and the tax collector? Would this be your take? Look at it. Verse 14, Jesus is speaking, I tell you in the parable, this man, the tax collector, went down to his house justified. You know what another word for that is? Being made right with God. Righteous. Rather than the other. Who's the other? The Pharisee who thinks he's righteous. See, the key to generosity is seeing your need for God's mercy. Tax collector humbled himself. Pharisee, arrogant, prideful, blind. The story of two brothers. Both went to college. They grew up on a farm. Both went to college. One of them, they both got degrees. One of them became a doctor, smoothed around with a lot of important people. Comes back home to realize that his brother came back to the farm, even though he has a degree. And he ran the farm. And the brother who became the doctor couldn't figure out why the other brother would settle when he could do better. And he came home to the farm one weekend talking to his brother. He's like, why are you settling? Why are you settling on the farm? You could do so much better. Why did I become so great? And you're still here. The other brother, rather than arguing with him, he pointed out from the deck of his house to the field, the wheat field. And he said to his brother, do you see those wheat stalks over there that are standing tall? Do you know why they're standing tall? They're standing tall because they're empty. They're empty on top. So they can stand tall. But do you see the the stalks over there that are bowing low? The top is pushed down. Do you know why the top is pushed down? Because they're full. They're full of wheat. What's the message? He who exalts himself 
who stands tall, the Pharisee, will be humbled. He who bows low, tax collector, will be exalted. That's how God's kingdom works. You see that? Maybe you're not the Pharisee. Maybe that's not your M.O. Maybe that's not your background. Maybe that's not what you struggle with. Maybe you are the ta- like the tax collector. The way that the tax collector rejected God is because he would trample over people. Maybe that's been you. He would pray on others, reject God in that way. Maybe your struggle is like the tax collector's. The question is, are you willing to take ownership? This guy took ownership. This guy didn't blame it on other things, even though there's things there to deal with. Didn't blame it on his past. He didn't say, I'll get better. That's just being like the Pharisee. Have mercy on me, for I'm a sinner. He humbled himself before God. You have to admit your need for help. See, Jesus says he's the good physician, and the good physician comes to do what? To heal who? The sick. You got to know you're sick. And not only does seeing your need for mercy help you receive it from God, but it also helps you cultivate it toward others, and we'll get to that in the next few weeks. You see, God is the source of all generosity. The evidence is not just external, it's internal, it's in the heart. And the key is seeing. It's seeing your need for mercy. Do you see your need for mercy? See, God is a generous creator. He's the generous owner, and he's given us his grace. But here's a question. How does God generously give to us? Where does it flow down from? Where does his generosity flow down from? Romans 8.32 says it this way. This is beautiful. But it costly. God did not spare his only son. He didn't keep it to himself. He didn't say mine. But he gave him up for us all. Ephesians 1, 7, and 8 says this about where generosity comes from and how it comes to us. In him, in Christ, we have redemption through his blood. This is the cross, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the what? The riches of his grace, which he did what? He lavished upon us. He backed the dump truck up and lavished his grace from the cross for what Christ did upon you and me. He lavished it, not just a little bit, a lot. The riches of his grace. Your takeaway today is God's generosity in Jesus is over the top. It's over the top. So here's the question as we leave today. If God demonstrates his generosity towards us through his son in this way. What are the expectations of our generosity holding an open hand to others? 
in our relationships with other people. We're going to talk about that next week. In the following weeks, we're going to talk about what generosity looks like as it relates to service because Jesus came to do what? He came to serve and to give his life as a ransom for us. So what does that look like for us to take up our cross and serve? And the gospel truth that God adopts us into his family, into his household, that he brings up a seat at his table, how does that affect the way that we open up our hospitality and our homes to other people as well? And last, he's lavished on us the riches of his grace through Christ. So how are you generous with your time? How are you generous with your treasure, with your riches that he has lavished upon us? See, generosity isn't just about money, even though that's part of it. See, a right theology of generosity starts at the source. It starts with God himself, who's lavished his grace upon us. In the next few weeks, we're going to explore some different currencies or streams of generosity that flow out of God's generosity to us in his son. I hope you join us. Let me pray.